Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? Once we get going, we'll be picking it up at verse 38. But if you were to ask the average person today, what is needed for the flourishing of mankind? If you were to ask somebody, what, what is something that you would say is vital for our ability as a human race to thrive? I think it's safe to say that near, if not at the top of that list, would be the word freedom. Right? Freedom is a word of, of liberation, and, and, and it's thought that I, I don't want to be held by any constraint, that, that the highest level of fulfillment, the highest level of joy, is when the self would experience total and complete freedom from, from anything that would try and bind it. I think it would be a common answer, and yet the people of God, I think we can distinguish what I would um, distinguish between total freedom and true freedom. And I'll explain it like this. Um, one of the classes that we offered this winter, we have the final week of classes um, this upcoming week, but Christy Scarpa and I uh, are co-teaching the class 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. And it's a book that, um, or class that has a book that goes along with it by a man named Max Anders. And in the introduction to his chapter of the kingdom era of the Bible, which is 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles, um, Max shares a simple illustration, I think, to make this point. And it's going to be on the screen. You can follow along. He says, there are certain freedoms we can have, but they have corresponding bondages. And there are certain bondages we can have that afford us corresponding freedoms. For example, you can be free from the toothbrush and in bondage to cavities. Or you can make yourself a slave to the toothbrush and be free from cavities. But you cannot be free from both the toothbrush and free from cavities. This example stood out to me, one, because I think it's simple and it illustrates the point, but it also speaks to my daily dilemma Not so much with the toothbrush, I'm good with brushing, but asking me to floss is just a step too far, (laughs) right? I want to be free from having to floss, and yet what has often happened, including recently, is that I become captive to cavities and even root canals, and just a shout out to Grace Church member Jennifer Chin, who has inflicted such pain upon me in the friendliest way possible. But the point is, total freedom, as people often think about it, does not exist. Everybody binds themselves to something. But true freedom does. True freedom, as God designed it, comes from choosing the best kind of bondages to enter into. We're going to continue this morning in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon given by Jesus that describes the kind of people that are part of the kingdom of God. And then the kind of lives that they lead as part of the kingdom of God. And so this morning we're going to see a major distinction between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And and, and how the world advocates for total freedom. Which is thought to come by the, the freedom for self complete freedom for self. And we're going to see the distinction of the kingdom of God, which advocates for true freedom, which I would say comes from and comes by way of freedom from self, okay? So the world 
is freedom for self. Kingdom of God, freedom from self. That's what I want to have in our minds as we enter into our passage this morning. It's a short passage, a common passage, commonly quoted. It's going to be chapter 5. You can follow along as I read verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I think this is a passage, and maybe the passage, that gets referred to more than any other in the Sermon on the Mount, by both Christians and non-Christians alike. And because it does, I think there is perhaps no passage that is more confused and even misrepresented in its meaning. And it's all driven around this catchphrase, eye for an eye. And the irony is, I think, the misinterpretation that this passage gets today is eerily similar to the mistakes the Pharisees were making and Jesus is correcting. But if you would recall that this passage is among six illustrations that Jesus is giving in a row to support the statement from verse 20, that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And then he gives you six illustrations, or gives us six illustrations to support that. And this is the fifth of the six And he begins all these examples the same way. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These exact phrases are found in multiple places in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. And it's known as the law of retaliation. And its purpose in the Old Testament, this is what often gets confused, its purpose was not to increase or encourage vengeance and violence, but it was actually put in place to limit vengeance and violence. This is a merciful law because it would prevent punishments that would exceed the crime. Without this law, Literal lawlessness would take over. And so the law of retaliation is put in place by Moses within the nation of Israel to carry out righteous justice. Eye for an eye, and nothing more than an eye. If someone took out your eye, the due penalty was his eye in return and nothing more. Now, most often this is meant to be a figurative statement, right? I don't think it happened too often that you accidentally took somebody's eye out and that you wouldn't necessarily have to take their eye out in return, but it's just meaning that compensation or a punishment ought to fit the crime. And then he says, says, gives the other illustration. If he knocked out your tooth, you, owed, you were owed one tooth and nothing more. But the point being, again, righteous just, justice is a punishment that fits the crime and does not exceed the crime. So these laws were, in a sense, put in to protect a person who would commit a crime from receiving an unjust punishment. And this concept was, I think still is, by the way, the foundation for justice, even in our country, that we believe that punishment ought to fit the crime and that should not exceed the crime. 
which is why this topic has actually gotten a lot of discussion in recent years in our government. And, and honestly, it's been one of the few bipartisan issues that has been talked about by both Democrats and Republicans. The idea for criminal justice reform. The acknowledgement that our justice system has and had and still has issues where you have some people who serve longer sentences for something like drug charges as someone else who maybe is guilty of manslaughter or embezzling millions of dollars. And, and there's this kind of lopsided punishment that does not fit the crime. And I think it's clear that's often, uh, most often towards black Americans that serve longer punishments for lesser crimes than their white counterparts. So eye for an eye speaks into this for legal purposes. And that is why it's important to note that Jesus is not opposing the legal application of this law in his day. But rather, his problem is with how the Pharisees are now applying this concept to their interpersonal relationships. So this is why it's related to last week's passage on making and taking oaths. Do you remember he said, I'm not against oath-taking. The Bible's not against oath-taking, certainly in the court of law, certainly in marriage. Jesus himself would do it in, uh, before Pilate uh, on the day he was indicted. But he's saying, I'm against swearing and taking oaths in just everyday conversations when it's not necessary. And in the same way, eye for an eye in the Mosaic law was the law of retaliation given to judges, not individual people. If you go back and read through, Moses is advising the judges. This is the basis for civil justice in Israel, not interpersonal relationships. So now, in the present day, the Pharisees are dragging this judicial law into the everyday personal arena in the name of biblical justice. They are using it to justify their own personal bitterness, their desire for retaliation and revenge. Right? They were the original advocates of the phrase, I don't get mad, I get even. Pharisees wanted to get even. And Jesus will blow that up when he says in verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, if we're honest, if I'm honest, whenever I see this line at first glance, it feels super confusing. Do not resist the one who is evil. What does Jesus mean by that? Again, he's not talking about the legal application. He's not talking about the authority given to governing authorities or about righteous justice on behalf of the oppressed. He is describing the wrong application by the Pharisees to these personal, everyday interactions. And he's exposing this attitude that is all too common, this attitude to always exact personal revenge on others, to, to get them back. Somebody wrongs me, I'm going to wrong them back. He says this is contrary to the kind of redeemed person who exists in the kingdom of God. Remember, two worlds, kingdom of God, kingdom of the world. That is an attitude that is centered on self and that is not free from self. And that one of the things Jesus saves us from, one of the things that the Spirit fills us in order to do is to free us from the sin of selfishness. And he doesn't save us in order to be selfish. I think this passage and what we're going to see unpacked is essentially an explanation of Jesus' radical call later to his disciples. Do you remember this? When he says, if anyone would come after me, let him what? 
deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Have you ever asked, what does that mean in everyday life? What does it mean to be living in the kingdom of God and actually denying yourself? Jesus is going to give us four examples here. I think this passage unpacks that line as good as anyone does in the Bible. And it's all under the phrase, do not resist the one who is evil. He knew it would widen some eyes when he said that. Leave them scratching their heads. And then he gives these four one-line examples that are pretty radical. I don't think you can do it without the Spirit of Christ in you. And while each line is culturally specific to the time... By digging into them, we will be able to pull out and apply these principles for us today, okay? So we're going to see them one at a time. We're going to see four total. Number one, radical restraint. Back half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This line in particular is often and has often throughout church history been taken to the extreme to make the case for Christian pacifism, right? For example, probably most notably George Fox. He was an English dissenter in the 17th century who would eventually be the father of the Quaker movement. That he would believe that this teaching means that no Christians should ever serve in law enforcement, that it would be a sin to ever serve in the military. And it's a view that I think clearly does not hold water when you incorporate the rest of Scripture. If you just try and take this one out of context, it's the only way you can make that point, which is why it's not been a popular view, but it has been sprinkled throughout church history. But in fact, most commentators agree that Jesus is not even talking primarily about a physical slap, just like in the Old Testament. It's not primarily physical eyes and physical teeth. It might include a physical slap. We know Jesus will be slapped when he's tortured at the end of his life, but he's primarily here referring to a verbal insult, a verbal slap, so to speak. And certainly back then, certainly today, we are much more often going to be confronted with verbal insults more so than physical ones. But let's see kind of what he means by this. Um, Everyone in the first century was basically right-handed, Right? You might know that being left-handed is a pretty modern phenomenon, right? Right? That, that it was only, only became acceptable in the last hundred years, but everyone was kind of conformed to be right-handed. So hang with me here. Think about you're facing somebody, you're right-handed, and you want to slap them on their right cheek. If you need to put it in front of your face, what do you got to do to make it happen? Backhand. Backhand slap, right hand right cheek. And according to rabbinic law, a backhanded slap was twice as insulting as a front-handed slap. It indicated a calculated, disdainful attack. By the way, it's where we get some of these phrases like a backhanded compliment, right? A backhanded compliment. It's like, wait, did I just get insulted or what just happened there? Or just a backhanded comment. It's something that's meant to be disdainful, disrespectful. And so Jesus is saying that when you are on the receiving end of a calculated attack, maybe physical, but more often verbal, that's the context he's speaking into. And we know today emotional wounds from a harsh word take far longer to heal 
than physical wound from a physical slap. If we were to pause and go around and just ask, do you recall some of the worst things someone has said to you, many of us would recall it word for word. So this is someone saying something that wounds unfair criticism, a harsh insult, ridicule, where our initial reaction and impulse is to do what? To, to return it, eye for an eye, criticism for criticism, insult for insult. And when that happens, it's usually not just an eye for an eye, but we want to come back even stronger, don't we? Like, if you come at me, I'm going to come back at you, and then some. You might start this, I'm going to finish this. Isn't this our mentality? It's surely the mentality of the world. It's one who, when you are just advocating only for yourself and you are bound to your own reputation, that you cannot handle that kind of offense. And Jesus says, not only should you resist returning the same level of insult, he says to his disciples, don't return it at all. Show radical restraint. Because again, if you do return it, you are operating under that mindset that you were owed the right to return it. You were enslaved to your own wounded reputation if you need to stand for your right to return it. But rather, Jesus says, because you are bound to me, because you are in me, you are freed from that mentality. You are freed from self and having to get that revenge. In Christ, you could absorb it and show radical restraint. And when you are freed from having to exact that kind of revenge, you actually are also free to show them love and not retribution. So what Jesus is doing here is he's looking at the Pharisees and he's calling out false strength. Right? What we call popcorn muscles. It looks strong, it ain't that strong. False strength seeks to get revenge. Real strength shows restraint. And in this way, by the power of the Spirit, you can relate to your enemies like neighbors. This is what will then segue to Jesus' next passage, or his next illustration in the next passage, which Pastor Joe will cover next week, to love your enemies. What does that mean? How is that possible? Well, part of it is to treat them like a neighbor. You love your enemy when you treat them like a neighbor. You give them the reaction that will most orient them and point them to Christ. Think about this with me. Let's put ourselves in the other person's shoes, okay? So we've been thinking about when you receive unfair criticism, think about the times, and we know we all have it, when we were the one that unfairly criticized someone else or ridiculed someone else. Don't you, in that moment, you know that when you're on the offensive and you're criticizing, aren't you gearing up for them to give it back to you? Aren't you kind of preparing, like, have the expectation that now, like, I'm going to volley one to them and they're going to send one right back? And in those times, if you receive no response or even a loving response to your unfair attack... Doesn't that even hurt more? This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 12. Look at this. Um, I think it's on the screen. Romans 12, 17 to 21. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think this is so vital because this happens in these everyday scenarios that we have, and it's not usually just with random people or people that we don't know online, although surely I'm sure it happens a lot online, but this also can manifest itself in our closest relationships. People who we actually do love the most and therefore can wound us the most and therefore we have the most temptation to wound them back in our marriages, in our extended families, in our friendships, amongst our coworkers, even fellow church members. Where anything negative we hear, it hurts so badly that we want to calculate the way we can get them back. And that leaves you in a mindset of being always bitter, always trying to get retribution, taking offense to everything that is a slight or could be conceived as a slight. And when that describes you, brother, sister, you're insufferable to be around. I'm insufferable to be around if I'm always looking to get someone back or to be offended by something. And that does not show that we respect ourselves. It shows that we are slaves to our own bitterness. We think we're free, but we look down and we're in shackles to our own flesh. Tim Keller calls this, and he wrote a little booklet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness that if I'm not always consumed with myself, I can more easily return evil with good. Now, one more nuanced piece of this first point before we move on is that this does not mean that we willingly just take verbal and or physical abuse from the same person over and over and over again. If anyone would take this to advocate to somebody who's a victim of abuse to say, you just have to take it, look, this is what Jesus says. That is a wrong application of this verse. This does not mean we overlook being sinned against, especially from another believer. It means not exacting revenge on them. And there's a big difference. If we are insulted or harshly criticized by another believer, Matthew later in his gospel will lay out your responsibility in chapter 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is the pathway of restorative discipline. It's not to exact vengeance, It's not interpersonal eye for an eye, but it's to approach someone who has sinned against you and tell them that you've been wounded by them. Seek to restore them. And if not, bring others in and you follow this pathway of discipline for their good, not to satisfy your own vengeance. 
African scholar uh, Tecumbo Adamayo says this on the screen. Quote, Jesus does not call his disciples to ignore basic principles of justice. He does, however, call for an attitude that abolishes revenge. Underlying this argument is the idea that an injured person should not surrender his or her freedom to the oppressor, but one must take action that may surprise the oppressor, making them ashamed of their actions. He's saying we don't surrender our freedom to the oppressor, nor do we surrender our freedom to our own selfish desires, but we surrender it to Christ who frees us to pursue both justice and mercy, which brings shame upon the oppressor, not vengeance. All right, let's keep going. Now that we've established this, the next three examples will be quicker to unpack. But number one was radical restraint. Number two is radical unselfishness. A radical unselfishness. This is what it looks like to deny yourself and follow Christ in the kingdom of God. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the context of this example is going to sound strange to us, although it's relatively straightforward to extract the principle for us today. In first century Jewish law, you could sue somebody for their clothes. And the two primary items of clothing were the inner layer, called the tunic, or what we might think of as a shirt, And the outer, more expensive, more valuable layer called the cloak, or what we would think of as a coat. So I know for a fact this has not hit us today because we have more clothes than we know what to do with. Someone takes our shirt, who cares? Right? We leave our coats places and we don't even care to go back for them, let alone have any fear of someone suing us for our coat. I mean, to be honest, like here at Grace Church, downstairs there, downstairs there is a coat rack, and there have been some coats there since I think like 1985. <laughs> and no one's come back for them yet, but apparently we're waiting for you to come back and claim it. So I, I honestly tried to think of even a modern-day equivalent example for this, and I could not think of one. Maybe you can share one with me after. But the outer cloak was so valuable because for many people it was also their blanket used for sleeping. So Jesus, what he's saying is pretty radical. He says, if someone sues you and tries to take your tunic, your shirt, fine, and actually even offer up your more valuable cloak. I think it's important to remember, especially on this point, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are either currently or will one day soon face intense persecution. Recall the ending of the Beatitudes at the start of his sermon. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is not necessarily talking about times where someone seeks to take something from you for any reason to let them have it. But if you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, if they are looking to take from you to wound you because of your faith, Jesus says, let those things go. Just let them go. Because when we do so willingly, we once again prove that we are free from self. 
We are free from the constant need to always fight for what is ours, to hold things of this world so close that we indicate to the world that we need them for our joy and fulfillment. Jesus says, guys, let it go. Have a radical, unselfish attitude towards your stuff. This is radical for everyone. I think this is especially radical for a church in an area like ours. Have a radical, unselfish attitude towards your stuff. It's okay to have it, but don't grip it so tight that you indicate to yourself and to everybody around you, you need it. Because when you live with a radical, unselfish attitude, the world won't know what to do with that. Because they value themselves based on their things. And so by taking from you, they're thinking that they are hurting you because they're taking your stuff And in this way, Jesus is saying, you will show your strength of your faith. You will show yourself to be part of the kingdom of heaven when you show them the carelessness you have towards your stuff. This is what it looks like to be free from self, not for self. Let's keep going. Number three, a radical cheerfulness. A radical cheerfulness. Verse 41, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've all heard the phrase and even used the phrase, be willing to go the extra mile, right? Common phrase in our day. It's a phrase we get from this verse. Be willing to go the extra mile. And today we often use it as a way to encourage somebody in their job or their hobby to do more than what is expected, to go above and beyond. And in that sense, it's kind of a noteworthy thing to do. When you go the extra mile, people look upon you in a positive light. It brings you some form of acclaim. But in the first century, going the extra mile would be asking for public embarrassment. Because in the Roman Empire, Roman officials... And soldiers had the right to tell anybody to carry a literal burden for them. They choose the length, they choose the burden. Right? First century, Palestine, there's no moving companies. There's no high-tech moving trucks or mechanisms to get things from point A to point B. So what did they have to use? Manpower. You, carry this 400 yards. You carry this one mile. And Jews always felt they were especially targeted by the Romans to do this. It would be publicly embarrassing to not be able to say no. So they hated it. And if the wheels are starting to turn in your mind that this sounds familiar, it's because it does. Do you recall that when Jesus was carrying his own cross... He was beaten so badly that he literally could not carry it any longer. So do you remember what happened? Matthew 26, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. The reason why the Roman soldiers could just make this random onlooker, Simon, do so is because this was the law of the land. So Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, do this. Go two miles. 
If the tunic was about radical unselfishness, then the mile is about a radical cheerfulness as someone who lives and operates in the kingdom of God. Surprise them by going the extra mile. Because when you're freed from self, you're not so consumed with your image. You're not so consumed with how you look. You're not so consumed or bitter about how unfair or boring or monotonous the task is. But now you're free to have the mentality to know that you were valued and loved and accepted by God. So what does it matter if you go the extra mile? You're free to do it and even do it cheerfully. This is kingdom of God mentality. This is a life that denies self. It's a way of living that renders you untouchable to those who want to bring you down. And I think for us today, this can be applied in a lot of ways, but I especially think of just the everyday mundane tasks and routines of life that we often just get stuck in these ruts We're just kind of bored by our life. We're bored by things that we have to do. We're bored by work or our family or our routines. And and our life becomes joyless. Jesus says you're free to live a joy-filled life where everything you do, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, all you can do, you can do for the glory of, of God. And all things, when Paul says all things, he means all things. There's no exceptions. It's the mentality we're free to have, to not be wallowing in pity or boredom, but to be grateful for each day. A couple examples. Uh, Kent Hughes, who writes a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he, he writes this, quote, There are two ways to do any task. You can mow the lawn with a miserable expression, like you are mowing the Mojave Desert. Or you can mow it and say, there are birds in the sky. There are clouds above. It is not raining. And I'll add, the snow is finally gone. This is a great day. There's two ways to do any task. All right, she's going to hate this, but I have to brag about our communications director, Mary. Sorry, Mary, you're going to hear it twice today. But every Monday morning... Mary generates and sends a report from Sunday to the staff and to the elders. And it's your, just your routine Sunday report that has numbers and connection card prayer requests and all these kind of other items. Every Monday, all year, Mary does this. You know what I would do if I had to send this email every single Monday of every single week? I would write, see attached, <laughs> Period. Let me give you a couple examples of what Mary shares. Again, she's going to hate this. I'm sorry, Mary. That's why I didn't ask for your permission. (laughs) She says, attach the report from this past Sunday. What a blessing to see so many prayer requests come in. May we continue to lift up Grace Church and ask the Lord to lead this congregation mightily towards a better understanding of his love for them and his plan for their lives. Kidding me? All right, how about this? Hoping you guys are enjoying this beautiful snow and staying safe and warm. Attached is a report from this past Sunday. Thank you for continuing to lift up these prayer requests and serving the Lord here at Grace. Okay, I'll just share one more. Attached is a report from this past Sunday. What a joy to see the Lord continue to draw first-time guests to Grace Church. Thank you for lifting up these prayer requests. There's two ways to do every task. 
citizens in the kingdom of God can do all things. You are freed to do all things with a radical cheerfulness. All right, last one, number four. Radical generosity. Give to the one who begs from you and not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This last verse of this short passage solidifies the point that the passage is not about vengeance. And it's also not about passiveness. It's about an active, radical self-denial for the sake of Christ. It's a life where when we choose to be bound to him, we are free from ourselves. It's not total freedom, because that does not exist. But it's true freedom which is how we were created to live as image bearers of the Most High God. Free to be bound to him, united in faith, bound in life for his glory, for the good of those around us, and for our joy. So brothers and sisters, we are free to be generous. And to whom much is given, much is expected. And blessed is the believer who sees that it is a gift to be able to give. That it is a gift to be able to give. That you are blessed if you are a blessing. And it's an opportunity, not an obligation. And I say this, and I've shared this at times over the years, but as someone who really struggled with generosity until, by God's grace, I married a woman who was far more generous than I was, and then we had to start sharing our money. <laughs> and God enacted through her a breakthrough of joy, of understanding it truly is a gift to be able to give. And to know that I can be freed from my own greed freed from being consumed with myself, being consumed with my time and my money and my resources, and to be able to live open-handed to further the kingdom and prioritize the least of these among us. And living generously does not mean lacking wisdom. It does not mean enabling someone who is in sin by giving to them. And it certainly uses discernment to give to those who we know will be good stewards of what they've been given. But true freedom and eternal kingdom living is found in bondage to Christ. So as we close this morning, I want to share a question from the New City Catechism, which if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Megan Planin, our children's ministry director, rolled out this initiative for our families a couple weeks ago where all the families of grace are doing these 52 questions, one question a week for a whole year. Today's the start of week three. But the first question I want to put up on the screen, the first question for our families was this, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And our children memorize the shorter answer that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Total freedom, as the world describes it, leads to death. But true freedom, as God describes it, leads to life. What are we going to choose? And we'll finish and then pray with Paul's words from Romans 6, 20 to 23. It'll be on the screen. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let it be. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the freedom that you offer that is only found in you, Lord. We are grateful that you lay out and in saving us also provide us a pathway to live. That you have a mission for us right now to glorify your name in all things, to seek justice and mercy for the world around us and to do it for our joy. Lord, give us the strength to walk in this this week, Lord, in radical restraint, radical unselfishness, radical cheerfulness, and radical generosity. And let your name receive all the glory for it. It's your name that we pray. Amen.